It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, January 13th, 2024. I'm Jared Halpern. The U.S. strikes back at Houthi fighters in Yemen as questions about the defense secretary's secrecy abound. You've got 15 minutes to respond if there's a nuclear ballistic missile launched somewhere in the world. And if you can't get in touch with anyone or if you don't know who's really, you know, holding the final authority. And President Biden's son makes a surprise stop at the U.S. House, intensifying calls for a contempt of Congress vote. I think that uh, that Hunter Biden should be arrested right here, right now and go straight to jail. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. U.S. warships, submarines, and aircraft, along with British fighter jets, carried out significant airstrikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. Houthi rebels have been firing missiles and drones at commercial and cargo ships in the Red Sea, the group says, in response to Israel's war in Gaza. American and global partners have stood up a Red Sea task force to repel those attacks, and officials at the White House warned the Houthis to stop or face consequences. Those consequences came Thursday night. Sixty targets were hit in strikes designed to cripple radar, missile, and drone capabilities. Those airstrikes were also carried out by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin from Walter Reed Military Medical Center, where he remained hospitalized following complications on New Year's Day from prostate cancer surgery last month. The hospital stay has been a major scandal, as President Biden nor anyone else at the White House was told for days that Austin was rushed to the ICU, had a procedure, or even that he had been diagnosed with cancer. Reviews and investigations across government, including in Congress, are now underway, and questions about U.S. readiness are being asked. Fox News White House correspondent Jackie Heinrich has been getting answers all week and joined me here at the White House to talk about the defense secretary's future and concerns about escalating conflicts in the Middle East. I I would say that, you know, it's not really a surprise that these strikes were carried out because the U.S. gave a final warning Mm -hmm. last week. Basically, the Houthis laughed that off on Tuesday and launched their biggest uh, attack to date toward commercial shipping in the Red Sea, this time directly targeting American ships uh, and, you know, basically said, bring it on. And so since that happened on Tuesday, the president asked his national security team to lay out some options for him. We've learned that Lloyd Austin was part of those calls. And then uh, they made the decision to carry out those strikes. Lloyd Austin from the hospital was monitoring it as the CENTCOM commander was overseeing it. Uh, We're told from the Pentagon press secretary that As of right now, uh, Austin and Biden have spoken twice in the last 72 hours. So in terms of, you know, Austin's ability to do his job, carry out his duties um, while he's in the hospital, clearly this action shows that there really hasn't been any impact to that. I do think we're going to see more fallout Mm -hmm. as the congressional investigations into who was notified about his illness, why proper, um, you know, authorities were not given to the deputy secretary of defense. It's we should note that she never once was given the full powers of acting secretary, including on December 22nd, when he was under general anesthesia, lights out for a prostatectomy. And then also 
also during that time from January 1st to the 5th when um, he was having complications in the hospital and she had certain powers transferred to her. Well, and for a portion of that time, she also wasn't in Washington. Right. She had been on vacation, pre, pre-allowed leave, right, yes. for, for some of that time. Which So I, I want to talk about that aspect of it. Let's, let's wrap up kind of the, the Houthi uh, attacks, uh, what's happening in Yemen. Um, is that something that, that we expect to kind of be a one-off, or could this be a wider conflict now that the United States uh, is forced to be engaged in? Well, the president has said that he will not hesitate to take further action should it be necessary. But they have also said that, uh, you know, the Pentagon said that this was a significant operation that degraded uh, the Houthis' ability to do the kind of stuff that they've been doing. I mean, they they took out radar and um, missile launch sites and storage facilities. They think that it had, a you know, it was pretty effective. There were 60 uh, targets at 16 locations. We don't yet know the number of casualties. The Houthis have claimed that five people died and six were injured. We'll see. But I think that it'll depend on what happens next. Uh, if the Houthis take more action, the U.S. might respond again. But broadly speaking, uh, this is something that the U.S. has held off on doing for a very long time because we don't want the U.S. to get overly bogged down in the Middle East when really we got to keep our eye on China. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that is something that we don't want to have a, a distraction from. Also a concern about kind of just widening the conflict in the Middle East with what's happening in Gaza, in Israel, uh, concerns about Hezbollah, obviously another Iranian-linked militia, much like the Houthis and Hamas, and whether or not any action would cause them to perhaps change their calculus on opening a northern front. Well, yes and no. Um, I think that U.S. officials have been very clear that any action that the U.S. has taken to date has been a response mm-hmm. to attacks on the U.S. or on, uh, you know, commercial mariners, uh, U.S. allies and partners, trade and commerce, um, that unprovoked. Mm-hmm. You know, the U.S. is not widening the war. And when there have been questions posed to officials here about whether, you know, U.S. has has sort of invited any more of this, they have really strongly shut down even the question of that. Because again, these are Iranian-backed proxies that have continued to stoke and inflame tensions in the region, which, by the way, is what Iran wants to see, is what China wants to see, because they want the U.S. to be embroiled there uh, and take our eye off the ball in in, uh, the South Pacific. As we look at the week that was for for the defense secretary, this is unprecedented. I mean, even John Kirby has kind of struggled to to give any sort of rationale as to why the defense secretary would not have informed the president of the United States that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, was treatable, but was getting treated for it. Have you heard any other sort of from the Pentagon or, or anybody else what the rationale for that secrecy was? Well, No, I have not heard any rationale. I think that there are a couple of outstanding questions here. I mean, on its face, Lloyd Austin and the president spoke on Saturday Mm -hmm. when uh, the U.S. rest of us found out that he was in the hospital um, on Thursday and they had a discussion on Saturday. Lloyd Austin took responsibility for not properly informing the public and he vowed to do better 
talked to the president that day on the phone and still didn't tell still him, hey. Still didn't say anything about cancer. Hey, I, I, I'm in the hospital <laughs> yeah. because I have yeah. cancer. You would think that the president might say, hey, Secretary Austin, how are you doing? What's going yeah. on? Why and were you hospitalized? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Apparently that never happened. Um, now, there are other open questions here because I think one person who has sort of fallen under the radar in terms of all this media scrutiny is Austin's chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, it is her responsibility to inform Congress, uh, the National Security Advisor, and the White House uh, of, you know, the secretary's hospitalization. She didn't. Um, the reason being is she had the flu. She also didn't delegate those duties to anyone else. We don't know yet whether Austin said, hey, don't tell anyone. That would be maybe a mitigating factor. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Also, Austin's um, senior military assistant, Lieutenant General Clark, uh, someone from his office informed the deputy secretary on the 2nd, Tuesday, that some powers were being transferred to her, but no one told her why. And so there are questions about, okay, you're you're in Puerto Rico snip, sipping a Mai Tai. Uh, do you realize that you're effectively acting secretary, you know, even though no one has told you? Uh, basically, was the scope of the situation really impressed upon the people who needed to know? Because if, as Fredericks have pointed out, you know, you've got 15 minutes to respond if there's a nuclear ballistic missile launch somewhere in the world. And if you can't get in touch with anyone or you don't know who's really, you know, holding the final authority, that is a waste of time that no one can afford. I know that there are a lot of reviews now that the uh, chief of staff here, uh, Jeffrey Zients, has sent this memo out to cabinet secretaries about what the protocols are, what they need to be. Uh, There are reviews happening at the Pentagon, both internally and and now the uh, inspectors general. But, you know, the question was raised uh, this week uh, about how much information do you have about the specific locations of key people in the government? And, you know, it was kind of laughed off a little bit by Kirby. So we're not going to microchip cabinet secretaries like poodles. Uh, But it does raise questions about, like, how much does the national security staff know where people are at any given time? Yeah. And Kirby said, you know, we have authorities that are sort of broadly spread out, you know, to the appropriate people so that you don't have a situation where one person is holding too much responsibility Mm -hmm. and then that poses a risk. Um, They've sort of excused all of that. I I do think that it's a little bit rich that you have the, you know, chief of staff directing an investigation at the Pentagon when she's really the one who didn't, uh, you know, follow through with her own duties, unless there's some other factor we don't know about. We want to, you know, Well, and I think that's why the inspector general probably got involved too and said, we'll we'll handle this. But Congress is also upset. They're they're like, this is not, you know, Armed Services Republicans, uh, Intelligence Committee Republicans are saying this is does not pass muster. You know, we want to have really official answers. And, you know, this is not going to be the the end of that whole probe. It has certainly been an embarrassment. And I I do kind of feel for some of the officials at the Pentagon who've been the face of this mm-hmm. having to answer our questions. You know, Pat Ryder, Pentagon press secretary, came out and said he had an elective medical procedure. And then we find out that he had, you know, a cancer diagnosis and surgery for it. Granted, you know, technically it is elective. It you, you, can, you can schedule yeah, they, they it. Sort of scheduled yes, it. Yeah, it's scheduled. Yeah. It's not an emergency surgery. Sure. But, you know, colloquially, you it's think a of semantic, you, yeah, you think yeah, about, you know, yeah. getting a mole removed yeah, or something yeah, when it's like yeah. a local, you know, a, an elective surgery. So you kind of feel that people who have been given limited information are now the face of this problem. And it's just been a mess for the Pentagon this week. It also I mean, listen, we we talked about the strikes in Yemen, and the question was also asked, what if October 7th had happened 
during, you know, this three, four day period. Um, have you gotten sort of a clear answer about what that delegation would have looked like? Well, to the questions about U.S. readiness to respond, I mean, they have said, the Pentagon has said, and the White House has said that there was never a gap in command and control and that Biden was the you know commander in chief at all times and tried to assure people that there were no issues. But at the same time, I think the outstanding fact remains that the deputy secretary of defense had certain powers transferred to her and was yet not designated the full duties of acting secretary, including at two times when one Lloyd Austin was lights out under general anesthesia December 22nd and then another period from January 1st to the 5th when he's in the ICU at one point with a tube down his throat to drain his stomach. Um, And so you have to wonder, you know, were we truly ready? And I think that that's something that only a a full investigation is going to tell us. Here's the final question. And this gets more into the speculation, which is harder. But, you know, I have not gotten any indication that the president has lost confidence in Lloyd Austin. Is this something that politically the Defense Department moves past? Well, I think it's going to depend on the results of an investigation. I think that's why you have investigations happening, because if there is some result that says there was gross misconduct or wrongdoing or a risk to national security, they will have to take action. At the same time, the president is not going to publicly say, you know, my confidence in my secretary of defense has been totally shaken at a time when U.S. forces are under attack (laughs) overseas. Um, (laughs) You know, they're going to say what they're going to say. We'll see what the investigation says and what action they take. And there have been a couple of reports that the president was privately exasperated that he found out, you know, about the hospitalization at the same time as the rest of the public found out about the cancer diagnosis the same day as the rest of all of us. That shouldn't happen. Yeah, he's um, the commander in chief. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he should probably get he's got information. Access to, to information the rest of us don't have generally. Yeah, yes. yeah. All right. But he's a private man. Lloyd Austin has said he's a private yeah, man. Yes, yeah. And I, another sort of layer to all of this is there has been a little bit of dismay that Secretary Austin, despite being, you know, this private natured person, didn't use this opportunity to impress upon black men um, who have a higher risk of, of prostate cancer that, you know, be a spokesperson for this cause. Early, early screening. Early screening. Yep. Um, wasted opportunity there. Jackie Heinrich, it was a busy week here. It'll be a busy week next week. We'll keep checking in. Thank you. Thanks, Jared. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. When Barnum and Bailey declared their circus the greatest show on earth, I don't know if either had ever seen the House of Representatives. What I do know is this week, Congress gave that big tent a run for its money. I think that uh, that Hunter Biden should be arrested right here, right now, and go straight to jail. Who wants to hear from Hunter right now, today? Anyone? Come on. Who wants to hear from Hunter? That was South Carolina Republican Nancy Mace and Florida Democrat Jared Moskowitz at a House Oversight Committee hearing crashed by the president's son, Hunter Biden, as lawmakers on the panel considered a contempt of Congress resolution. It was a dramatic and unprecedented scene, a witness who defied a subpoena for closed door testimony showing up in the committee hearing room to signal a willingness to testify in public, a wild press statement from Hunter Biden's attorney, Abe Law outside the hearing room followed. 
Hunter Biden was and is a private citizen. Despite this, Republicans have sought to use him as a surrogate to attack his father. As if that episode wasn't enough, another House panel started moving forward on an impeachment process for Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, threatening to impeach a cabinet official for the first time in about a century and a half. House Speaker Mike Johnson brokered a spending deal with Democrats in the White House. He is now facing the same threats to the gavel that former Speaker Kevin McCarthy faced. All as Congress tries to avoid a partial government shutdown at the end of next week. So on a week like this, with high drama and plot twists at the Capitol, who better to explain it all than Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram. Barnum and Bailey, they have elephants, they have, uh, you know, the bearded lady, they have all these different things. They, they didn't have anything like what's happened up here the past two times that Hunter Biden has come. I mean, I mean, they would have needed about five rings. I mean, we had Hunter Biden showing up on the Senate side of Capitol Hill back in December when he was supposed to be on the House side for a deposition. And then when he wasn't supposed to come because they were marking him up uh, for a contempt of Congress citation in the committee, this is a, a proceeding which doesn't have witnesses or anything else, he just shows up. Now, right. some people might say, well, why didn't they let him talk at that point? Well, number one, James Comer has said we always, and if you look closely at the subpoena, you know, it doesn't say for a hearing, you know, or anything like that, but they intended to have a closed door deposition first. He's offered to have him in for a, an open hearing at some point. Uh, but this was a publicity stunt of the highest order. Bafo theater here. And I, I mean, so th- I, th- let me ask about that. Right. I mean, yeah. you're right. Th- th- I, listen, th- there could probably be some lingual wrangling back and forth about whether or not, you know, he should be allowed to do an open hearing or a closed door, whatever. Th- the idea that he shows up when the committee is considering contempt and just kind of sits there Mm -hmm. really is going to not win him many points with those who uh, really have the ability to hold him in contempt. Will it? Well, they were going to hold him in contempt no matter what. I mean, it's clear that he violated a subpoena and Democratic run houses and Republican run houses. They've held people like this in contempt of Congress before. I mean, so so I mean, that was pretty clear. Uh, It was interesting about when he left. So as soon as Marjorie Taylor Greene and it wasn't so much that it was Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican from Georgia, but as soon as she started to pose questions to him, Mm That's when he got up and left. Now, he was not at the witness table, but people, you know, who I've spoken with said, you know, that's where you could get yourself into some legal jeopardy. Now, he already faces legal jeopardy, you know, Mm -hmm. going to Los Angeles, you know, be arraigned on these uh, federal tax charges, could land him in jail, Mm -hmm. convicted up to 17 years. Mm -hmm. Um, The question is whether or not the Biden Justice Department will prosecute him. Uh, There is a mixed track record uh, by the Justice Department here when it comes to the prosecution of these instances. I mean, you had a a criminal referral for Steve Bannon and uh, Peter Navarro, who've been prosecuted, you know, for not responding to a congressional subpoena. You had Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino, also former Trump aides, who were not prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some Democrats thought it was a little bit rich for Republicans to be claiming, oh, you know, how dare you not comply with a subpoena? And I should point out that there were a number of members of Congress, including former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, including uh, Jim Jordan, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, Mm -hmm. uh, Scott Perry, Republican from Pennsylvania, former chair of the Freedom Caucus, who did not comply with subpoenas issued by the January 6th committee investigating the riot. Now, there's a little bit of apples and oranges there simply because it's rare. members of Congress. 
Yeah, yeah, to issue a subpoena to a member of Congress. And you could argue that, you know, if they didn't comply, well, you're not going to send them down for prosecution. You have an issue of the speech or debate clause in the Constitution, mm -hmm. which protects them from being prosecuted, you know, in, in actions pertaining to their official work here on Capitol Hill. What you could have done in the case of those members who thumb their nose at the 1-6 committee subpoenas is referred them to the Ethics Committee because you're mm -hmm. saying, look, you know, this is what we do. They're not playing ball. That didn't happen. So I, I in principle, the Democrats are probably right about that. In practice, probably no. Let's talk about the Hunter Biden contempt. Is it possible that there is still room to negotiate here between uh, James Comer's staff and, and attorneys for Hunter Biden? Sometimes that's how these things get worked out. Sometimes that's how judges work this out. They, yes. they force the two sides to reach an amicable agreement, sort of setting uh, the scope, the, the, the terms for, for a deposition and a hearing and kind of telling both parties to, to grow up and, and work it out. Is there still room for, for that process to play out here? Or, yeah, or yeah, does absolutely. this event here sort of sour things so much that no one's going to play ball with anybody? I think there's always space for that. Um, but, you know, the tactics by Abby Lowell, the attorney for Hunter Biden, have been mm -hmm. pretty hardball and pretty unique per the yeah. opening of our conversation. Never seen here. anything like this before. No, exactly. I mean, I mean, <laughs> nothing, nothing even remotely like that. Um, but, you know, some people might say, you know, this has kind of taken the place of the Biden impeachment. You know, this is part mm. of the Biden impeachment inquiry. Mm. It's doubtful that they would ever have the votes at this reading to impeach the, the president. You know, they're down to an operational two vote margin in the House of Representatives yeah. right now. And, uh, you know, Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on the committee, he said, I think that, you know, this is cover for that. He thought it was cover for the idea that they're scrambling around trying to get the votes uh, to figure out what to do with a spending agreement. Mike Johnson, the, the Speaker of the House, I mean, he is getting it in stereo right now from both sides in yeah. his conference yeah. about this spending deal that he worked out with uh, the Democrats and Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries in the White House. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, this was astonishing. Uh, I interviewed Warren Davidson, Republican from Ohio, took John Boehner's seat in Ohio, in southwestern Ohio. He said that his vote for Mike Johnson was the worst vote he had cast in his four terms. And so wow. Mike Johnson wow. had a little bit of a leash here. But, uh, you know, you have people like Chip Roy who are already you know, kind of threatening uh, gingerly that they might try to, you know, unseat the speaker. We don't think they're there yet. But but this is the problem facing Mike Johnson. And I'll come back to Hunter Biden in a second, is that either one of two things is going to happen in the next week. Either he's going to accede to the demands of the hard right in his conference because politically it's untenable for Mike Johnson and the government will shut down. There will be a partial mm -hmm. government shutdown at the end of next week. And you and I will be talking about that, I'm sure. Or they work out probably... Wednesday at the earliest, more like Thursday, Friday, they scramble around and say, OK, we got some things here we can work on. We're going to blow everything up, including the investigation of Hunter Biden, including the impeachment of the president, including the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas, if the government shuts down, which is true. And so they scramble around and they put together a, a CR, which Mike Johnson previously had said he would never do an interim spending bill. And now he's kind of dialed that back ever so slightly. Just touch the dial on that a little bit there, Jared. So uh, all these things are kind of rolled together, even though they are on paper unrelated. I want to talk about this dynamic with, with Mike Johnson. One, um, I don't think it was widely known that these types of negotiations between the speaker, uh, Senate leadership and the White House were even happening. Well, something was going to have to happen. I mean, I mean, th th they were 
you know, they didn't have appropriations bills. They didn't right. do appropriations bills on the floor in December. Uh, they didn't do appropriations bills scheduled the first week back this past week. So, you know, everybody kind of knew something was going to have to happen. And whether that was individual bills or whatnot. And, but you're right. I mean, that was kind of kept close to the vest. And I think that's what got the dander up of some of these conservatives, mm. although I did speak with with one um, Republican member who's a bit of an ally of Johnson who said they would have been mad at him no matter what he did, which is true. <laughs> Absolutely. There's that, I mean, that's the truest statement that's been said in the building this week. Uh, so, yes, you're right. But they were kind of under cover of darkness because, you know, what we were paying close attention to over the immigration. Yeah. Yes. Which that's still not worked out. And that's another thing that would go by the wayside. I mean, uh, you know, James Lankford, who's been negotiating on behalf of the Republicans, this is the GOP senator from Oklahoma, he has indicated that uh, he's gotten things. We don't know what these things look like because talk about holding your cards close to your chest here. Uh, Lankford and uh, Chris Murphy from Connecticut and to a lesser degree, Kristen Sinema from Arizona. Uh, they have all not really said what they've negotiated here. And this is where some Republicans who were briefed a couple of days ago by James Langford said, you know, this all sounds pretty good so far, but we don't see legislative text and they don't want to put something into legislative text because then it gets out and then then people mount opposition about it. So until they get really get everything completely worked out, you know, we thought we might see a bill this week. You know, last right. week on Fox News Sunday, Langford said, I think we'll get text this week. And then by, by right. I think it was Monday night. Uh, they said, never mind. <laughs> with somebody close to the negotiations and said, no way. So, yeah. I mean, that that changed rather quickly. Uh, but that's because we were all focused on that. Um, there's a lot going on, Jared, and it's hard to keep track of all of it. Uh, you, but, you know, I mean, I, I mean, a good example of this. Um, this is the scene up here on Capitol Hill. The Republicans were meeting for the first time since they heard about this spending deal and there were shouting matches and people yelling at Johnson and both sides and he's kind of caught, caught in the crossfire. At the same time, the Homeland Security Committee was starting its impeachment hearing on Alejandro Mayorkas. At the same time, two committees were marking up the contempt of Congress citation for Hunter Biden. At the same time, Hunter Biden shows up. In fact, I was supposed to report on the Mayorkas impeachment and, and we got on on the air once about that. And two minutes later, we were on the air and the rest of the day talking about Hunter Biden. So well, you I be, mean, you, you got to be nimble. <laughs> well, but, but, but that demonstrates why it's hard. It I mean, you can't you can't dial into all of those issues simultaneously. Those things, those four things were happening at once. And journalistically, right. it's impossible to track every last one of them. So surprised that, you know, people weren't paying as close attention to the spending things. So to that point, and maybe this is a good place to kind of wrap up this week. Um, we now have Mike Johnson facing a lot of the same criticism that Kevin McCarthy faced before he was ultimately ousted. Uh, mm -hmm. First ever Speaker of the House to be removed through a uh, motion to vacate the chair. A lot of those voices now starting to, to complain about Mike Johnson. Is the House Republican conference, which is now even slimmer than it was when, mm -hmm. when Johnson got the gavel, uh, governable for, for the next 12 months? That, that's, uh, that's a great question because I don't think a lot of people know. And, and the people who, who, who think they do know, their answer is probably no way. It's not. It's, it's demonstrated that. Uh, because, again, you know, a, a case in point is they had you know, three unrelated bills to spending or border or anything else, something about, you know, electric cars. And what you have to do in the House is you have a a rule. This kind of allows you to bring bills to the floor, but you have to approve the rule on the floor first. So you had these Freedom Caucus folks, again, without communicating with the speaker, blow up the rule on the floor, blocking the House from considering any of this. 
completely unrelated bills as a protest. And, um, you know, I remember talking to a senior aide here early in the week. I said, so what is our plan now that we have this top line spending agreement negotiated last weekend? I said, are we going to put appropriations bills on the floor this week? No, we're going to do them all next week. I said, well, you can't do four bills because the deadline on the 19th is for four bills. I said, you can't do, heck, you have trouble doing one bill a week. I mean, you mean tell me suddenly you're going to do four and you're going to get the Senate to do them? And they said, well, that's the plan. I said, well, that's not operationally possible around this place. And so I went to somebody else who's a pretty um, even-minded, even-keeled member uh, of the Republican conference. And they said, you know, what we do around here is we often tackle our own quarterback. Uh, and, <laughs> and I went to somebody else who said that they have a number of members around here. And the term that was used on me, Jared, was politically immature. So hmm. probably is the answer to your question. Ungovernable. Well, uh, it's a big week to govern next week, as you point out, with these uh, fast approaching uh, deadlines to keep uh, at least part of the government open and obviously trying to to break through a compromise on immigration. So a lot to talk about next week is if we didn't have enough in the world of politics with us now fully uh, enmeshed in a uh, reelection bid for, I don't know, about 530 members or so of the United States Congress. Yes, absolutely. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, it is the Iowa Caucuses Eve. Jessica Rosenthal will explain the unique event, the significance it could hold for candidates. And I'll join her and Fox News Radio political analyst Josh Crossauer to set the stage for what could be a contest happening with bone chilling and record setting temperatures. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halper. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.